If you are a fourth and fifth grader at this time, you can head to Harbor Kids. Your leaders are hanging out in the back and they're ready for you. Good morning. On a recent road trip, uh, my friends and I came across a couple of signs, of billboards really, that stood out to us along the way. They were billboards that uh, we came across. The first one said, the end is near. Have you passed one of these billboards before? So we're driving and we're continuing on and then we come across another one. And it says, are you going to heaven or hell? And it gives you this phone number to call for the truth. We really do think a lot about the end of the world, don't we? Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with a neighbor where you're talking about this recent tragic event that you both know about or a natural disaster that's just happened and your neighbor says to you something to the effect of, this seems like a clear sign that the end is coming, doesn't it? We really do think a lot about the end of the world, don't we? It's not just Christians who have this fascination with the end of the world. It's more of a large general cultural thing, isn't it? We can look at popular films and series such as Don't Look Up, Doom, Annihilation, Extinction, and The Walking Dead, um, and older movies such as World War Z, Armageddon, or The Day After Tomorrow. And we see all of these examples of fascination with the end of the world. We occasionally will hear news predictions on, on the news where we'll turn on the news and there's this prediction of the, the day that will mark the end of the world. You may remember what is now called the 2012 phenomenon, which was a range of beliefs that a major event would occur on or around December 21st of 2012. Um, We may even remember this back to the future meme that was floating around in our Facebook feeds if we had Facebook back in 2012. Why is there so much fascination with the end of the world in popular culture? Do people explore these ideas about the end of the world out of curiosity? Is it out of looking to explore and be imaginative? Or is it out of anticipation or anxiety? I wonder if there's more to it than that. I wonder if many people fix their attention on the end of the world because we are uncomfortable with uncertainty. We are seeking to find the resolution. We're looking for what the answer is or find clarity about the future. We don't just experience this feeling of uncertainty when thinking specifically about the end of the world, do we? What happens when we confront questions about our future that feel uncertain? So your youngest child just started college this fall and you thought you'd savor the freedom that comes with this period of time in your life. You, would, you have more one-on-one time with your spouse, less of the school schedules and running kids everywhere, but instead you're finding the quiet and loneliness and you're wondering how you're ever going to find the new rhythm to this whole thing. And you're sitting with a future that feels uncertain. Your parents' health has been declining for a long time, and now is the moment where their care needs are really starting to ramp up, and you're sorting through home health options, and you're wondering what is going to be the next step for their care, and you're wondering what is on the horizon for their health, 
and you're sitting with a future that feels uncertain. The business that you've owned has significantly changed over the last few years. And interestingly, you feel like you've changed too. What used to be something that you felt so compelled to pour yourself into just doesn't feel very fulfilling anymore. But how do you even start with making a change when you have invested so much into this business and you're sitting with a future that feels uncertain? We've been in the Gospel of Matthew this year, and we're reaching the section of Scripture describing the hours before Jesus will be crucified. And in these final hours, Jesus launches into some really harsh language. He speaks about the end, about weeping and gnashing of teeth, and people randomly disappearing. These images often get connected with things like the rapture or Armageddon or hell. These images may leave us wondering about the future and feeling uncertainty when we are trying to understand the words of Jesus here. Throughout the next four weeks, we are going to be exploring the world behind these images and to try to get some clarity on what Jesus means. This morning, we will focus our attention on Matthew 24. Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time after preaching the message of the good news to his disciples and to the crowd and answering questions that have come to him from the chief priests and teachers of the law, from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. He goes to the Mount of Olives where his disciples come to him privately in this moment, what will Jesus reveal about what, the, what is to come? If you have your Bible with you this morning or have it in your phone, we are going to be starting in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Let's dive in together. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, and the disciples are calling attention to the building. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, they particularly pointed out the stones of the temple as well as the buildings. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, gave the dimensions of the stones by saying, in the temple there were several stones that were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. So let's translate that into some feet. How about it? So that was 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, and eight feet high. Think about that for a moment. The length of these stones is about the same as from this gym stage all the way to the back wall. Can you even imagine this? Stones that large. Such massive stones were also estimated to weigh several hundred tons. We have a model of what the second temple of Jerusalem would have looked like. We have some photos of what that would have, be, would have been. Look at the size and scale of the second temple. And then we have also another photo that specifically shows some of the ruins of the second temple. And you can see the size of these stones, even in ruin, are just enormous. 
these stones were such an enormous size and principally built, principally used to build the high wall on one of the sides of the temple from the base to the top of the mountain. They were beautifully painted too with a variety of colors. These stones were significant. The disciples see the temple as solid, as secure, and as beautiful. In fact, the temple was the centerpiece of religious activity, of festivals, worship, and sacrifices. It was likely serving as the most secure thing in their lives. If you had to name the most secure thing in your life, what would it be? Your marriage, your family, your faith community, Maybe it's the home that you've always lived in or a friendship that you've held dear for as many years as you can remember. We can't even imagine that part of our life missing or coming apart, can we? But in this moment, Jesus speaks a different message to the disciples. He invites them to look at the whole of the temple. And here's what he says to them. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Looking at this massive and glorious structure, the disciples must have found Jesus' words to be shocking. What seemed secure would be in ruin. What would you feel like if you knew that something so secure in your life would be in ruin? Maybe disappointment, anger, sadness, maybe fear? This was not something abstract that Jesus was describing here. This wasn't just a metaphor that he was sharing with his disciples. In 70 AD, the temple was indeed destroyed by the Romans who who, um, encouraged a siege on Jerusalem. Forty years after Jesus' words to the disciples about the temple, the Roman armies under Titus came in and fulfilled this prediction to the very letter. When Jesus describes the destruction of the temple, not only is he giving a prophetic word about specific events that would unfold for Israel, there is also something that we can engage in right now, here today. Because Jesus isn't talking about a victory that he'll have. He's not actually asking the disciples to defend the temple here. That's not what's happening. At this moment, he is inviting the disciples to sit with him in this uncertainty. He's offering an opportunity to acknowledge that what you thought was secure is actually uncertain. Something we don't like to do, right? We'd rather ignore or avoid uncertainty, wouldn't we? I wonder if we can identify with what the disciples may have felt in hearing this declaration from Jesus. Maybe you find yourself and in the midst of a company that's reorganizing and your job has just been eliminated and you are unsure of the career path ahead for you and what will be a fit going forward. And now you're confronted with questions about the future that feel uncertain. The therapy recommended by your doctor had been working well and all of a sudden it isn't effective. And now you're back to experiencing symptoms once again and you're confronted with questions about the future that feel uncertain. You thought that this person was going to be someone that you spent the rest of your life with. 
and you've been growing distant and you know that the relationship is fractured and all of a sudden you're confronted with questions about the future that seem uncertain. In August of 2018, my mom was diagnosed with stage four metastatic cancer and the progression of her cancer was very rapid. I remember the first weeks after her diagnosis feeling a sense of shock and disbelief and being confronted so often with uncertainty with the health journey that would lie ahead for her. We experienced the uncertainty of what the next day would bring in terms of her symptoms, uncertainty of how our family life would change and how we would support her in this journey, uncertainty of the prognosis and what the future would hold. I realized that I was holding on to these expectations of what I thought the future would look like. And in that moment, I became so aware that my thoughts about the future and the present reality just did not align. The future did not seem secure. I was confronted with questions about the future that seemed uncertain, and I and my mom and my dad and our whole family had an invitation to sit with God in the midst of this uncertainty, or we could try to ignore it and pretend that it wasn't there. When the future seems uncertain, do we lean in or do we avoid engaging in it? I wonder if that's the reason why Jesus is bringing up the destruction of the temple. We avoid the future, especially if it feels uncertain, and he invites us into it. God invites us to step into uncertainty. Let's keep reading because this conversation isn't over. As after Jesus explains that the temple will be destroyed, the disciples realize that they have questions about the future. You see, the uncertainty has now been exposed. So what is their response? Let's continue reading in Matthew 24. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. The disciples do not question Jesus immediately after leaving the temple when Jesus makes this declaration, but they come to him away from the crowds to the Mount of Olives to find out what is to come. Have you ever had that moment with a close friend where they share some really surprising and personal news in this whole big group of friends and you find yourself feeling really anxious to pull them aside and to learn more about what's going on? You're curious and you want to just have that time together. The disciples are coming to Jesus seeking to make sense of what he shares with them about the temple. They are troubled and confused. 
You see, the temple is the center of the nation's life, and they regarded it with awe as the very dwelling place of God with his people. The disciples ask Jesus two questions. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? The disciples' questions are not very far from questions about the future that we would ask, are they? How will I know? Will will there be warning of what is ahead? How long do I have? We see Jesus' first response to the disciples' question in verse 4. He warns them to watch themselves and to not be deceived. He's saying to them, watch, pay attention, do not be deceived, do not be distracted. In verse 4, the word deceive is the Greek word planao, which means to lead astray or to wander off course. You see, if Jesus' followers aren't paying attention and are distracted, his disciples will, will wander off course from following him. This is Jesus' warning to them. He is saying to them, if you are so focused on what will happen in the future, you will wander off from what I am saying to you in the present. He then describes to the disciples what they should be watching for. Others claiming to be the Messiah, wars, nation rising against nation, earthquakes, persecution, and false prophets. What is Jesus saying here? Is this the moment where he's pulling aside those who are closest to them to him to lay out what the end of the world will look like? Is this the blueprint for the end of the world? It's a pretty bleak picture that we read here about the future. And and what it what do we really do with this? We could wonder if this passage is a description of the end of the world. But actually, Jesus is giving a prophecy of what is already to come in the next generation. All of these events that he is describing from verses 5 through 11 are, are going to come right around the time of the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Jesus tells the disciples to watch for others claiming to be the Messiah and false prophets. And from 30 to 70 AD, we find historical references that align with Jesus' prophecy. One example is Theodos, a Jewish rebel who told his followers that he was a prophet and led them in a very short-lived revolt from 44 to 46 AD. Jesus also tells the disciples to be on watch for nation rising against nation. The first century historian Josephus wrote an entire book titled The Jewish Wars because of various wars, conflicts, and battles that the Jews had between 30 and 70 AD. Jesus tells the disciples to watch for earthquakes. And when recording events from 51 AD, one of the Roman historians wrote of houses flattened by repeated earthquakes. Jesus knows the tension that he of the question of the afterlife, but he is not responding to those questions here. He is emphasizing events that would already occur in the next generation. But here's the key. Jesus is pointing out that the disciples should be less concerned with knowing the exact time of what is to come and far more concerned with paying attention to the present that they find themselves in. This is a warning not so much about the end of the world, but about being distracted from what God has for us today. 
This is something that we totally understand, right? We are living in a world with packed, maybe overpacked schedules. We're super used to multitasking. There is a constant hum of notifications, and we hear social media voices that are constantly distracting us from paying attention. Do you notice who or what you're listening to about God's kingdom? Jesus invited the disciples to watch and to not be deceived. He's challenging them to recognize who or what they're listening to. He's cautioning them not to wander off from God's kingdom in a season that will be filled with a world of turmoil. Jesus' words to the disciples do not lean into their curiosity, but he's preparing them and he's cautioning them. He encourages them to stay rooted, to stay firmly rooted, and to confirm their faith as they witness the events to come. As Jesus is present with his disciples in this time and in this hour, he's reflecting that and encouraging his followers that God himself will be with them. Author, professor, and theologian Henry Nouwen once said, Why, O Lord, is it so hard for me to keep my heart directed toward you? Why does my mind wander off in so many directions? And why does my heart desire the things that lead me astray? Let me sense your presence in the midst of my turmoil. Nowen names our tendency toward distraction, doesn't he? He's so honest in this prayer and in the challenge that, that he faces in terms of staying centered and focused on being able to sense God's presence. Maybe that's the prayer that we need this morning. Jesus cautions his disciples to pay attention in the midst of the events to come. Let's continue reading in Matthew 24. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is pointing to an era ahead of intense persecution, death, and hatred for those associated with his name. Many who seem to be true believers will fall away in response to the false prophets. This is a very bleak picture of what the future looks like. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to encourage them by saying, none of this will stop the gospel of the kingdom. You see, friends, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has has been teaching his disciples and that his followers have been experiencing close up with him, this kingdom is coming, but this kingdom is already here. Jesus is the king. The disciples come to sit with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is the very place that the prophet Zechariah had predicted that the Messiah would stand when he came to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is not just a future hope, but it is a present reality. And it is a present invitation for us today. 
The invitation for us is not to root our hope in, in um, mere things of the present, but that it is to root our hope in something far bigger than ourselves, our nation, our career, even our religious traditions. Real faith is rooted in a kingdom that is far bigger than kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God serves as a leading image of Jesus's mission, as author Leland Riken describes it. This mission is marked by the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promises through Christ to reach others with the good news of the gospel. Today, friends, matters more than tomorrow in God's kingdom. Let me say that again. Today matters more than tomorrow in God's kingdom. And so here's our question today. Are we showing up in the now? And if not, what is holding us back? Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13, Jesus gives us a series of parables to shed light on the kingdom of God. One of the parables is a mustard seed. We're probably familiar with it. In Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, we read, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is something that grows. It starts as something tiny, innocuous, almost invisible, like a mustard seed, and one day will grow to something enormous and very visible. What's interesting here is we're reading in Matthew 24 that Jesus reveals that this massive, beautiful temple will be destroyed and that the world around these disciples will grow in trials and conflict and persecution. But at that same time, the kingdom of God is going to grow as these followers, as Jesus' disciples, go out into the world preaching and sharing the good news that he has been sharing with them. Jesus begins his public ministry with an invitation to repent as the kingdom of God has come near. And in his final hours, before he goes to the cross, he invites his disciples again to the gospel of the kingdom. The invitation to his disciples is to center our lives not on a place. He, has, he is giving an invitation that is beyond an established order. Jesus is inviting them to explore where are they centering their hope. Are they centering it on certainty of what has been or what seems secure? Or are they centering their hope on seeing God's kingdom now and in the future? Maybe you find yourself in one of two places today. First, you could be someone who finds God's kingdom inaccessible to you. You feel like you're on the outside of it. You feel as though it is unfamiliar. Maybe it's even uncomfortable. 
Or maybe today you're someone who really would like to take a step to be a part of God's kingdom, or you have been after that that following for a while, but you find yourself distracted by the world around you this morning, or maybe you find yourself wandering off. I want to offer all of us one way to avoid distraction and center our hope on seeing God's kingdom now. Centering prayer is a faith discipline that quiets our thoughts before God. In a centering prayer, you focus on one prayer word, or it could be a phrase as well from the scripture that describes who God is. In centering prayer, it offers us an opportunity to bring our mind and our heart back from the distraction to remind us of who God is. To practice a centering prayer, you choose one word that reminds you to be present in the presence of God. So some examples of these words could be something like stillness, rest, trust, hope, love, listen, or peace. I invite you today to think about what is the word or the phrase that's going to help me to remember to pay attention to what God is doing in my life today and in this week. And when you pray, start with that word, repeat it, and let it resonate within you as you center your heart and that time that you have with God to be intimately connected to what God is doing in your life and where he's inviting you into the kingdom. Jesus's words to his disciples encouraged them to follow him and to join in the gospel of the kingdom. Where do we center our hope when faced with uncertainty in the future? As with his disciples, God invites us to be present in the moment, to see the kingdom of God, and to be witnesses of the good news with those we encounter. I want to close today with a story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and writer. He was vocal in his staunch resistance to the Nazi dictatorship during World War II. He was imprisoned in concentration camps beginning in 1943, but that did not slow down his ministry. He worked in religious outreach with his fellow prisoners and with the guards until his death in 1945. Bonhoeffer had reason to be distracted, reason to be deeply concerned with the, de- with the deception that surrounded him, reason to be depressed and disillusioned, but instead he was driven to offer others hope. He encouraged those around him to be watchful. Bonhoeffer writes, look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are heavy and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up, you who burdened with guilt cannot lift your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware, be watchful, Wait just another short moment. Wait, and something quite new will break over you. God will come. In the midst of the turmoil of the world, Bonhoeffer urges those that he is speaking to to be aware and to watch. Pay attention 
God's kingdom will break through. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for sitting with us in the midst of uncertainty. We praise you and we thank you for your presence with us. Lord, if we feel as though we are far from you today, please help us to sense your presence, to pay attention, and to join in your kingdom now. Lord, I pray that we would center our hearts and our hope on you, for you are our good, good father and our gracious king, and we thank you that you invite us to be part of your kingdom now and in the future. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.